Hello, my fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to Nice Chats from the Geology Podcast Network. I am Dr. B, and in each episode, I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of natural problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we will have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geosciences, I, with the help of our guests and occasional co-hosts, will take care of feeding you all the information you need in a casual and fun environment. Today I'm interviewing Associate Professor Heather Handley. We're talking about uh, volcanoes today, mainly. But Heather is involved also in many different things that you should get to know. So brace yourself for a long episode, uh, because I particularly am very curious about so many of her projects. Now let's get this chart started and welcome Heather. Hey Heather, welcome to Nice Jets. Thanks for having me. So today, unfortunately, I'm flying solo. Uh, because Sylvia is currently on her way to give a talk at Münster. So very exciting, but unfortunately she couldn't make it. Um, so Heather, my first question to you, even before we get started with the usual uh, segments of the show is, what is your affiliation? Because I know that you recently moved to Europe, but to me, it's not clear how much you're still part of Australian institutions. Yeah, so about two weeks ago, I made the move from Australia to Europe. So I'm now based in the Netherlands in Enschede at the University of Twente. So my role here now, so it's a it's full-time full -time job here, but the role is 50% volcanic hazards and 50% doing geoscience communication for their new Center of Disaster Resilience, which is very exciting. So I get to combine two of, two of my many passions in this role, so it's very exciting and The, I still am very much connected to Australia. I've been there for 15 years. It very much feels like home. It's a, a lovely close-knit community there of geoscientists. And I've still got affiliation, so an honorary role at Macquarie University and an adjunct associate professor role at Monash University in Melbourne. So I'm still be between the two places in terms of my academic connections and my a lot of my research is still in Australia and my passions for research are still in Australia. So I'm, I'm definitely not letting go very easily and they're not going to get rid of me that quickly. But um, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm very much uh, between two places in, in spirit, but based now in, in the Netherlands. Okay, great. Uh, okay, that's much clearer now, thanks. Um, So even though I personally don't think that we need a, a game to break the ice this time because you're so easy to talk to, let's still play one just for fun, okay? Okay. <laughs> so this is one of the rare occasions where we didn't actually come up with a game. Instead, today I want to take a quiz together with you uh, that was created by the Earthquake Commission. And that's like an insurance company from New Zealand that also supports research. Uh, and I will also put the link of this quiz in the show notes, just in case our listeners uh, want to take the quiz themselves. So the quiz is called, which tectonic plate boundary type are you? Um, are you ready to find that out, Heather? Yep. So do I just need to click on, on Yeah, the just click on... Take, qu take quiz. Take quiz. Yeah, and we'll we'll okay. go together. So, which picture is the most inviting? Go with your first instinct. So here we have a picture of like a Buddha in some vegetation. Uh, some some uh, athlete working out with weights, uh, carrying weights through a gym. Then there is a, a very nice appealing picture of a drink. Uh, And then the, finally, there is like a, a stone wall with some, with some trees in the background. Heather, which one is the most inviting to you? Yeah, I think for me, it would, I'd have to go with the cocktail one. <laughs> oh, cocktail. Okay, okay. Okay, next one. What is your cooking style? Uh, I like using tried and true recipes. I am a pretty good cook, but I could probably be a little bit more adventurous. My cooking style? Does a margarita count? More is more, 
I love experimenting with new foods and cooking up big feasts for all my friends. Doesn't say anything about doing the dishes afterwards. So. <laughs> and then finally, I'm into simple, healthy cooking. I especially love fish with just enough spice to keep it interesting. I think I used to be probably the more is more. Uh, and then after children, I've probably come to be the first one. So using, you know, tried and true, things need to be pretty quick now and, uh, yeah, and do the business. So I would like, you know, eventually when I get a bit more time back when the kids are older to do a bit more experimenting and a bit more feasts for everybody. But yeah, I'm a little bit boring at the moment. It's more to just get some food on the plate and get them to eat it. Fair enough. Um, what would be your favorite holiday? An active hiking and climbing holiday. I don't like to sit around. Um, I'd like a creative retreat where I get to learn and make something. A holiday where you can meet new people, try a new language, new food, have an adventure. Or a quiet tropical island with amazing diving would be your number one choice. For me, all of all of these four options are things that I enjoy doing. So it's extremely hard to choose. I think at the moment I'd really enjoy just to get out, you know, away from all the chaos and go for a really good hike. So I'm going to go with the active hiking and climbing holiday. Um, what is your ideal Saturday night activity? Dancing the night away with friends, reading a good book on your own, quiet time in nature or hosting a big dinner party, all cooked by you, of course. For this one, I would be between kind of, I guess, quite conflicting, either a quiet time in nature or hosting a big dinner party. Um, and I think because I've moved to a new place and need to get to know people and uh, make some new friends, I'll go with host a big dinner party. Yeah, I really like the idea of hosting a big dinner party. Not so sure about all cooked by myself. Yeah. but <laughs> Okay, if you could look into your childhood classroom, what would you most likely be doing? Following the lesson, making everyone else laugh, helping others, dreaming and doodling. Ooh, a tricky one. Following the lesson, make everyone else laugh, helping others, dreaming and doodling. I think I'd probably be dreaming and doodling, actually. I know on field trips when we were at university, I was always the one at the back looking for fossils when we were walking along the coast. So, um, yeah, I'll go with dreaming and doodling. Yeah, I'm uh, as much as I wish... I was making everyone else laugh because I, oops, sorry. Um, as much as I wish I was making everyone else laugh because I consider myself, I've always been like the, the, the class clown, you know, uh, I'm such a nerd. I probably would be following the lesson actually. <laughs> okay. So, uh, let's see if we reach the same final conclusion. According to my results here for Heather, you are the deep diver. You are a subduction zone, an underwater convergent plate boundary where one plate, the dense oceanic crust, is forced under another. The subducted plate eventually melts and creates a region of volcanism inland. Oh, volcanism, there you go, from the boundary. So, yeah, Do you, are you happy with the results? Yeah, it's interesting. I guess I spent I spent most of my volcanic career studying subduction zones, so it's maybe not any surprise that that's the one it came up with. I want to use the intermission this time to thank our listeners. We are recording today's episode only a few days after the release of episode one from season two. And in that episode, I asked for your feedback. And uh, I have received so many nice emails from people all over the world. And I'm just very grateful that so many geoscience aficionados enjoy our podcast. Uh, we are really, really loving hearing that from you. Our email is nicechats at gmail.com and you can contact us there with any suggestions, any questions, or you can also write to me on Twitter at geodrb, G-E-O-D-R-B.
Heather, I think that most of our listeners, dare I say all of them, know what a volcano is. So I'm not going to ask you that. Instead, my question to you is this. So I remember in 2010, um, when that uh, volcano in Iceland erupted, there was like so much ash that was released that um, flights around Europe were virtually canceled. Like they, there were basically no flights pretty much. Um, and that was, of course, the, um, oh boy, Ayafjallajökull uh, volcano. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. I practiced. <laughs> However, just last year we saw all over social media, I remember it was the height of, uh, of the lockdowns in Germany, another eruption also in Iceland. But this time it was this nice flowing lava that people could get super close to. Uh, I remember that the, they lost some drones to the, the lava, but got amazing shots of just like the camera approaching, approaching, approaching that like, you know, bubbly uh, uh, orange, um, you know, lava pool or something. But uh, there was not that much ash, contrarily to 2010. So my question is this, is every volcano the same? So... I think you've almost answered your own question as well with that. The um, No, every volcano is very different and they all come in different shapes and sizes and they all have very different behaviours. So in the case of Iceland, I mean, the main controlling factor that is the overarching factor is really where we find them on the planet. So we have these big tectonic plates that are made of the, the crest and the upper mantle that move around, collide, pull apart. And so usually the first kind of order control on how a, how a volcano is going to behave is, is that, is where are they found in relation to these tectonic boundaries. So the more typical ash-producing explosive volcanoes actually aren't found in places like um, Iceland. They're found in the subduction zones, so my, where my quiz was heading. So this is where plates are coming together and colliding. And there, it's all the type of magma, the molten rock that's produced that kind of controls the rest of it that follows. So in those settings, uh, the magma that comes out of the volcano is, uh, and that's erupted is generally stickier. It's more viscous, it's higher in silica. So you've got a sticky, a sticky magma building those volcanoes. And then you've got more gas, more volatiles in those situations as well in these subduction zone volcanoes. So if you think you've got more gas and you've got a stickier magma making it harder for that gas to escape, that can lead to a lot more explosive uh, eruption style, which produces a lot more ash and these, you know, devastating kind of pyroclastic flows, these fast moving flows that we see racing down the slopes. So in contrast to somewhere like, say, the more recent eruption in Iceland and places like Hawaii, um, Iceland's a bit complicated because it combines two, two, two settings together. But if we go to, say, somewhere like Hawaii, where we're in the middle of one of these big tectonic plates, in the Pacific Ocean, there the magma that forms is very uh, runny in comparison, and it's so it's lower in silica, it's less gas rich, so it doesn't have as much gas as the other setting, which then means that this the the lava that comes out of these volcanoes or the magma that erupts, it can run for long distances as lava flows. It's not very explosive. It, it kind of oozes out. It travels very far because it's very runny. It's low viscosity. And it slowly builds up like very shallow sloped volcanoes that are not generally explosive. But then we have a situation where uh, we can have kind of runny and gas poor magma. We can have very sticky and gas rich magma. And these lead to different styles of eruptions and different landforms, different volcanic landforms. But if you put water, external water into the mix. So now imagine you've got a volcano uh, where the magma is rising to the surface and it interacts with groundwater. So it could be an aquifer or surface water, such as a lake or the sea. That then leads to a very explosive combination, or it could be under ice, such as in Iceland, where a volcano is covered by ice. Sometimes when you get a mix of, you know, this kind of cold groundwater, mixing that with very hot um, rising 
magma that can lead to explosive activity, even if it's a runny magma. And that's what can happen in places like Iceland, where it is typically a runny magma. If it mixes with this kind of external influence of water, it can then make an explosive eruption and produce the ash. And that's what happened with the Eyjafjallajökull one, is that there was this interaction of this external uh, water that led to it being more explosive. So there's quite a few factors that all come together to really determine the volcano's behavior. And it's really interesting. There's one volcano that I study in Australia. It's a beautiful little volcano in Victoria, uh, sorry, in South Australia, just, just across the border from Victoria called Mount Shank. And that volcano, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny little volcano, but it shows all these different styles within one little, one little volcano. So where the edge of the aquifer, it looks like where the edge of the aquifer was, like one half is like effusive fissure, you know, it'd be something like Hawaii. And the other half was explosive, you know, ma-forming uh, volcano. So, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of difference in between. And even one volcano can have these within a short period of time. This was probably all over within a few months, you know, mm-hmm. that type of time frame. You can see different behaviors even at the same volcano. Wow, that's, that's very cool. Um, I have never, however, seen an active volcano in Brazil. And yeah, sure, I'll give you that. I am not that old, um, <laughs> but neither has my great-grandfather. You know, he was the first Bahochi to exist when he migrated to Brazil. He hasn't seen any active volcanoes over there. Are volcanoes more common in certain parts of the globe? Yeah, it comes back again to tectonic settings. So we often see, well, when, you know, the surface of the earth that we stand on, we stand on the hard crust of the earth. And below that, below the crust is the mantle, and then we move to the core. And, you know, some textbooks give an appearance, you know, because they color the mantle red, that it might be all molten, and there's this big pool of magma underneath the crust, but it's not correct. The mantle is essentially a solid. It moves around, but it's essentially a solid So there's only particular ways we can melt that to produce magma. And that comes down to kind of the tectonic setting again. So where we have these plate boundaries, so where tectonic plates either pull apart from each other or push together in subduction zones is where we often can produce magma or where it might be uh, an anomaly like Hawaii, where we're in the middle of a plate and then we produce the magma. So... I'm not familiar with the geological uh, history of Brazil, but yeah, I understand that because they, you know, they're kind of on the other side of the Andes and, you know, that's where all the action is with the subduction zone going down the, you know, the backbone of the Andes, that they are quite far from the boundary. I think there's, there's a Brazilian one offshore on an island, you know, kind of out towards the east. But yeah, as far as I'm aware, it's pretty it's pretty quiet volcanically speaking in Brazil, and I'm not I'm not aware of any active volcanoes there either. Right. So basically, if you have a country or an island or something that is sitting around these tectonic boundaries, then that's more likely you have uh, volcanoes in there. Yeah. So the ones that are at the boundaries where we get so all along, you know, Chile, Peru, um, Argentina, you know, they see volcanoes on their on their within their boundaries because of the they're on the tectonic boundary pretty much where the plates are colliding and places like Indonesia you know this Pacific ring of fire that we're used to hearing about so they're all at the plate boundaries and that's why they're quite common but there's also many 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 more that we can't see under the ocean under the sea where plates are pulling apart so if you look down Iceland so Iceland's quite unique and it kind of combines um, one of these anomalously you know hot spot type volcanoes with a boundary pulling apart, you know, between two big tectonic plates. But if you follow that down the mid-Atlantic ridge, that is where we are pulling apart, you know, or, or, or these are diverging these plates. And we do get magma in that setting as well. Because what happens is, because you pull the plates apart, you know, you're thinning the area above that the mantle gets to rise up. And because the pressure is lower at that point, then than it, it would otherwise be if the crust was normal thickness, then that can trigger melting because the pressure's being lowered. So you bring that to higher, you know, to higher depth or shallower, shallow depth in the earth, then that can trigger the melting in that setting. So yeah, so we get um, most of our activity at, at the boundaries, but we do get like Australia has quite young volcanism, you know, geologically speaking, last eruption mm-hmm. was 5,000 years ago, but you know, that's in, you know, that's also in the middle of a, uh, a middle of a tectonic plate at current, you know, the current setting. So it's not right. it's not impossible, but it's yeah it's less less frequent. Right, right, right. Um, 
So in preparation for this interview, I visited your website, which I have to say, it's like probably what I should aim to do with my own personal website. I still haven't gotten there, but I, I really enjoyed going through all the content that you put in there. Uh, and one thing I noticed is that you have visited volcanoes uh, around the world. So I wanted to ask you, you know, where have you been? Which ones were your favorite? Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, it's obviously a job to kind of keep a, a website up to date. So yeah, try try my best on that. Um, yeah, I've I've I guess since ever since I was young, I've wanted to visit volcanoes, be around volcanoes. So any opportunity I've had, whether it's through holiday or through work or through um, studying, then I've I've taken every opportunity to go see go see volcanoes wherever I am. And I'm still trying to convince the the family every time we have a holiday now with the kids <laughs> to go see a volcano. So I've yeah I've, I think I've reached my limit of their tolerance of that. But yeah, so I I've you know traveled through um, just holidays and work to volcanoes in Indonesia, New Zealand, Vanuatu, the USA, Peru, Chile. Um, Spain, where else? Australia, Italy, Japan, the Philippines. So yeah, I I, I love you know I'm, that's my happy place is being on the side of a volcano, and so it's really hard to pick you know favorites because they are are all so different and you know it's the it's a cultural experience in different countries as well which makes it you know really memorable and enjoyable like having you know baked sweet sweet potato ubi bakar on the side of the road of you know the volcano in Indonesia is you know it's kind of all those. I guess emotive aspects as well of the ex whole experience, but I think one of my one of my favourites from the volcano itself has to be Yasser in in Vanuatu, because it's it's one of these volcanoes that, generally speaking, is extremely reliable that you're going to see, you know, an eruption. So it's 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 a bit like Stromboli; it's constantly chugging away, and then every ten minutes or so, there's a larger you know, a larger scale eruption and this big shower, you know, a big Stromboli eruption and a shower of hot, hot mm -hmm. rocks and glowing rocks. And if you go sit there at night, you know, it's extremely hard, hard to leave. One night we just went there just to, to watch it. And I think there was, was there three or four, you know, volcanologists and, you know, you know it's kind of, oh, we'll go after the next one. We'll go home after the next <laughs> one. Let's wait for the next one. <laughs> so it's impossible to, uh, to leave it. But yeah, it's absolutely spectacular, you know, to see, you know, the earth, and the, the the power of the earth and through the, through the volcanoes it's it's actually it's incredible and it was a whole experience there so we stayed and there's a little place you can stay just on the bottom of the the slope of the volcano and it didn't have any glass in the windows you know it just had basic curtains like like little wooden beds and so each time every 10 minutes through the night every time the volcano erupts you know the bed there's a little earthquake first the bed shakes oh, wow. and then you, you know you feel the pressure wave blows the curtains like in, oh, inwards so cool. and then you hear the pop 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 of all the volcano bombs the volcanic bombs landing so i think yeah it's, it's the whole experience of some of these places but you know also the tongariro crossing in new zealand in the north island you know, it's deemed as one of the best, you know, one day hikes in the world. And it truly is, you know, a spectacular volcanic country to hike through. It's really, really impressive. And then Australia, you know, it's such an unappreciated place for its volcanic heritage. And that's one thing I'm hoping to change a little bit. I'm writing a book on Australia's volcanoes. And so if I ever get <laughs> ever get time to make a bit more progress on it. Um, but yeah, I really want to highlight, you know, just some of these incredible uh, volcanoes that, that there are in Australia and will you know will class examples of some features as well that I just think haven't haven't got the attention yet so for example that little you know that little volcano Mount Shank I was talking about in South Australia it's it's just spectacular awesome awesome <clears throat> it's interesting that you mentioned um this you know interaction between the people and the volcano and how that's kind of like part of what makes the experience so enjoyable because my next question is kind of like along those lines, because, you know, volcanoes are fascinating. They completely change the culture and the habits of the people that are living around them. Mm -hmm. But they also cause a lot of disruption uh, from time to time. And if I'm not mistaken, your research kind of focus on acting to help prevent hazard areas hazard sorry in areas of active volcanism is that right yeah so I take a lot of different approaches I guess to that so some is kind of directly focused on people but also you know if you understand the past 
behavior of a volcano in its history, then you are often in a better place to have an idea of what it could do in the future. So for example, you know, if you can access through whether it's quarries or road cuttings, you know, really big sequences of all the past deposits that have built up on top of each other around a volcano and get an understanding of, you know, you use the the data, the, the information that the volcano gives you in its in its record to work out, you know, what type of eruptions were they, how big were they, you know, how important, how much impact, how far did they reach? And so if you see, for example, really big, significant eruptions every hundred years, or every thousand years through a record, you can get a little bit of a better understanding of the behavior to help for planning. So that's kind of a more, more not less direct way of doing it. And also through the chemistry of the rocks and the volcanic crystals that I study, I try to understand the plumbing systems to the volcano. So how what's going on beneath the volcano where we can't see? How is it operating? How fast do things happen? So you know, how long does gas build up before an eruption? How fast does the magma move from its source to its surface? Because that's going to give us a maximum kind of warning time in some settings. So there's those kind of, you know, more geochemical aspects and how they link to hazards and behavior and volcanological field observations. But I'm also become really interested in the last few years in more the people, direct people aspects. So people's perception, you know, the more social science aspects, people's perception of volcanic hazard and risk. You know, what what do they understand? What are they, you know, what are they missing that we should try to communicate better? Or what do we need, you know, how do we need to communicate? So the communication aspects. And then also really interested in, um, I think particularly from living in Australia and being aware of these long-lived cultural knowledge, you know, about whether it's about how to, you know, better prepare or avoid um, hazards and risk from uh, bushfires you know, to records of memories of coastal flooding, to, yeah, volcanic, uh, you know, meteorite impacts. There's a lot of information that the Indigenous knowledge, um, long-lived cultural knowledge holds also about volcanoes in Australia. So even though they happen, it happened a long time ago, it's been preserved and passed on through that knowledge. And because we haven't had any, um, you know, since, I guess, literate, you know, written records have been produced of, of activity there's been no eruptions in Australia so really it's a source it's a really important source of knowledge and what I'm interested in as a you know a western trained scientist is how we can better integrate those different perspectives and those the different knowledge systems and beliefs to also um, get a better understanding of past volcanic activity and how that has impacted people and the environment in the past and how then we can better prepare moving forwards. Right, yeah, that's very interesting because I recently spoke with uh, Catherine Goodenough about her research in uh, the African continent, and she we talked about exactly that of you know involving. In our case, it was more like local researchers, mm -hmm. uh, but you know we talked about generally how local people have uh, knowledge that we don't necessarily have, and that's a that's a very interesting example of how the indigenous. Um, population, um, you know, can contribute to this uh, record of the history that we we don't have because they have this tradition of passing. Oops, I'm all the time hitting the mic because uh, they have this tradition of passing uh, knowledge um, from generation to generation, uh, not necessarily written knowledge, but you know, uh, other forms of communication as well. And uh, yeah, it's really interesting how you can utilize that in res on research. But then again, you know, my question to you also is uh, how do you, how does your interaction with the indigenous uh, population benefit, you know, the, the indigenous people, the integration, all these things? Yeah, so in theory, you know, the, the knowledge by combining, it's just like saying, okay, well, I'm only going to use one type of data. So I might do a, you know, an assessment of something using one type of data. But if you use three or four types of information about the same thing, you're going to end up with a, a, a more holistic understanding of the problem. So it's the same in the way that if we, you know, widen our, our view as scientists, which I think we've really failed to do in the past, you know, to acknowledge the, the value of, of cultural, um, traditional knowledge, and there's just not been that the same marrying of, of uh, working together or and I think that that definitely is changing. And and I think Western 
scientists or, or, you know, when colonization has occurred in different countries, a lot of that knowledge has been lost and it's been not valued in the way that it, it should have. And I can see that there is some change in that way, which is, which is great. And, you know, trying to get back that knowledge. Obviously, a lot of it's been already lost, which is a challenge. But in theory, it would benefit everybody because everybody's at risk from volcanic hazards. And so, you know, it's, it's for, for anyone living in those communities. And it depends. So in, in Australia, it is very much, um, I wouldn't say that the, the knowledge would benefit, you know, the Indigenous people in particular or the, you know, the colonists uh, in particular. You know, there's no, it, wouldn't, it would benefit everybody. But I can see that in other countries where um, they've not been uh, colonised by Europeans, you know, the, the local beliefs and the local knowledge is, ex- you know, it's extremely important. It's how they've survived for thousands or tens of thousands of years. And, you know, Western scientists need to be, I think, just more open and more acknowledging of um, long-lived knowledge because it's, ex- it's knowledge through experience. And that has to count for a lot, you know, however you, you think the, the scientific system of, of knowledge uh, works mm-hmm. acknowledging experience is extremely important and experience of living in that environment you know there's only the local people that have that because they've been there for for long amounts of time so I think it's, it's still a it's still a work in progress um and it it's obviously a sensitive topic because yeah. you know the science there is scientific understanding that conflicts with sometimes with local beliefs and understanding and and of mm. of land and environment so yeah it's just something that hopefully you know by building collaborations and working together that you know everybody everybody benefits in the end especially local populations where they are on super you know very active volcanic islands or or areas yeah that's great i think uh, communication is the is the key here is not just imposing your knowledge but you know yeah. absorbing some of you know other people's knowledges and combining them to reach the the best possible you know overall um understanding okay so um a while ago a few weeks ago on twitter i saw a lot of buzz about the earth future festival uh what is it and how can people get involved the Earth Futures Festival was really born by um, personal experience. So in Australia, there was a feeling and it kind of uh, was was shown by university decisions to close geoscience departments and to reduce, you know, capability and capacity in geoscience, you know, in many universities, um, especially across the East Coast. And it was a frustration within me that, you know, people making decisions could not see the value of geoscience in sustainable development, in addressing the UN sustainable development goals, you know, the benefits to society, to prosperity, you know, and to understanding the earth fundamentally. So they they could not understand that. And so I've done a lot of outreach. I've done a lot of, you know, communicating to school, schools, to communities, through events, but I realized we're just not getting the message out in the way that we need to as geoscientists. And so felt it was very urgent priority to do this. And the, you know, the fastest, most loudest way I could possibly do that is something engaging, something visual and something international. And so that led to the, the formulation of putting together the Earth Futures Festival, which is an international film and video festival to showcase the role of geoscience in sustainable, in our sustainable future. You know, we've got such pressing issues that are fundamentally, um, you know, lie with geoscience, whether it's carbon capture, whether it's energy transition, whether it's, you know, aspects of climate change, mitigating hazards and risks of natural hazards. Um, So, you know, there's so many aspects of where geoscientists should be at the foundation of this to move forward. And it was this feeling that, all across the world, student numbers are, are dropping in geoscience. Universities are quitting courses, are quitting staff. And so really it was a reach out to see what, what can be done about this and, you know, and how can we make a change and address these current perceptions that people generally have. You know, the, in Australia in particular, there's a very strong mining focus. So people associate geoscience 
with mining and very little else, to be honest. And so, you know, it's really trying to showcase the variety and diversity, you know, even things like gender, gender equity and inclusion, you know, geoscientists are working in those fields to also reduce inequalities. And so it's much broader in even just geoscience, what geoscientists do. And so, yeah, the, the festival is an opportunity to showcase that. So people could submit videos um, depending on their category. So it could be, you know, media professionals, geoscience professionals, students, uh, high school students. And we've got special categories for women in geoscience and also indigenous and first nations peoples. And then we've got themes. So we've gone for dynamic earth, future earth and human connections to try and encompass, you know, that, that broad diversity that geoscience contributes to. Um, so I'm doing this um, with a, a collaborator from the documentary field, so a producer, and then we're doing it in support with the UNESCO International Geoscience Programme and the International Union of Geological Sciences. So we've got some really great support behind this initiative. And so, yeah, it's, it's, a lot of, uh, it's taking up a lot of time, but I, I think mm -hmm. it's really worthwhile to, to try to do this. Yeah, sounds really cool. Um, so this episode of Nice Chats is coming out at the end of September. What will be the situation at that time of the festival? Yeah, so at the end of September, we will possibly have held, we will have made all the finalist videos. So we've had 972 submissions to the festival. Oh so yeah, it was a little bit of a headache. So we've got to get <laughs> it down in the next, um, what is it, a week or two down to 21 finalists. Oh and then some, you know, extra selected, you know, ones that we'll put into the festival that we can showcase. And then the next round of judging. And so by the end of September, we should have probably hosted, I think around the 24th of September, we're aiming to host a screening. So like a themed screening selected, some selected finalist films and a question, you know, panel Q&A and then networking in New York. Mm -hmm. um, the Paris event is scheduled for the 6th of October. So we're just about to confirm that. So that will be one in Paris and that hopefully will be at the UNESCO headquarters. So amazing place to be able to host the Earth Futures Festival. And it's also going to be the new uh, day of, in, it's the International Day of Geodiversity. So it's a, uh -huh. it'd be a really great day to hold there if we can make that happen. And yeah. then in mid-October, it will be held in Sydney and so the same sort of, you know, a different theme, but screening, Q&A and then networking. And then the following night will be the final awards night on the 15th of October. Yeah. So all the finalist films will be available online. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be, you know, kind of on demand online. And we'll hopefully put the other ones that have been selected for the festival, you know, into kind of a curated uh, place to be able to view those as well. So we're hoping that anyone would be able to organize their own, you know, mini screening because everything's online. You know, it's like, you'd just be like watching something on YouTube. So all you'd need is a, you know, an AV system hooked up to a screen. You could showcase your own little uh, film festival, you know, pick a few films you want to show, maybe have your own little question and answer about, you know, what are the themes, what solutions are we seeing, you know, how is mm -hmm. geoscience helping? And we'll try to produce a few materials to help, you know, kind of just, give ideas of how to structure, um, you know, your own event. And then um, the awards event will be, so what we're trying to do is record the audio from the Q&As from each of those uh, three different themed panel sessions to mm -hmm. put online. Mm -hmm. So people can also listen into the discussion and then live stream the awards event so that everybody can follow, you know, follow the actual who's who's won the awards at the end. And there'll be a people's choice. So people will be able to give their give their say online. You know, uh, there'll be a form for people to fill in to click on their favorite finalist for the, a people's choice award. Oh, man, so much fun. Um, yeah, I just uh, made a note here to write the, the link, uh, put it in the show notes so people can access and check out the videos. Okay, so we're um, running a bit short on time, but before we get to the final section of the show, I would like to ask you uh, briefly about uh, Womisa, which you are a co-founder of. Uh, can you walk us through what that initiative is? Yeah, Womisa stands for the Women in Earth and Environmental Sciences Australasia Network. It it really came to fruition through, we were at a Women in, a Women in Earth Science conference in Brisbane at the University of Queensland 
at the end of 2017. And it occurred, it occurred to me that we didn't have within academia, at least, anywhere or a network, you know, for us all to come together to support, to, you know, raise visibility of, of women in geoscience in Australia. You know, the, the stats are pretty abysmal of, of the kind of equity and equality of, you know, whether it's women um, at leadership level, it's, you know, in terms of grants or funding opportunities, awards from professional societies. And so we thought one way to do that is to really come together, one, to pro- you know, provide a supportive network for each other, but also to raise the visibility. You know, so when people say, oh, you know, I couldn't find a, wom- a woman to invite for a keynote for this panel or, or for a conference, that we want one initiative was to build a database so people could put their own contact in there. They could tick a box on, you know, what kind of opportunity they'd be like to be contacted for. And so that's, you know, searchable Um, a searchable sheet that people can use if they need so when anybody says oh we can't find someone we say hey here you go here's our (laughs) here's our our spreadsheet and I know it's become very useful you know for people looking to um, find people for job opportunities you know for to increase the pool of applicants for media so I know we've been contacted by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation for you know and I've sent them the they've used the database so it's it's um, a mixture of things but really um in 2018, then we launched, initially we were thinking Australia-wide, then we got contacted by colleagues in New Zealand saying that mm-hmm. they didn't have anything either, could they Could they come in? So we said, well, you know what, why not make it Australasia and we'll try and connect connect the region. So yeah, so we made it from Australia to Australasia. So we have, we have the majority from Australia, but we also, you know, we have, I think, over 17 countries we've got members and there's, I think now over... Um, or close to 800 members. We made it free to join because we wanted to be inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's organizing workshops, networking events, you know. Um, so we do things like conferences or we do things online, like a shut up and write session every every month. So there's a lot of initiatives, local meetups within different areas, uh, just to try and raise the profile of women in, in geoscience and opportunities. So yeah, so I was there. Uh, so I co-founded with a, a couple of other people and then, We've ended up, so I then was the president and I've just handed over this last, just at the end of last year with the move to uh, Europe to um, the new president who was then elected in. So Melanie Finch, who's up in Queensland and she's absolutely outstanding. So when is in incredible hands and I'm really looking forward to, to see how that, how that moves on uh, to bigger and, and brighter steps too. Yeah, definitely. I've, uh, I've worked with Mel before and I can vouch for everything you just said, so. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's awesome. Uh, it's such a good resource to have. Uh, reminds me of this other initiative called GeoLatinas. I yeah. see all around Twitter as well. And they also have like this database of a bunch of researchers. And that's very, very useful for all the reasons that you mentioned, but also to look for collaborations like me, for example, you know, I'm in the, the beginning of my career. I am not necessarily aware of everyone working in different fields. And uh, this kind of database is, is very, very useful to finding people to collaborate with. Yeah, Geolotinas is a brilliant initiative too. So we, we have a partnership between Womisa and, and Geolotinas as well. And I met, oh, okay. met up with some of them and we shared resources um, one time at AGU in San Francisco. So no, they're, yeah, they're doing great things. That's great. That's great. Okay, for our next segment, uh, we like to ask always the same three questions at the end of every episode. These are questions which are a bit more personal. They're designed to make each guest a bit more familiar to the listener. Uh, They also allow us to compare experiences and opinions across all of the geoscience research fields. First question is, how did you first decide to become a geoscientist? I think it was through a a few different experiences with my family on holidays. So my first geological memory, so to speak, was when I was five years old. And a little bit like Mary Anning on the south coast of the UK, I was on the kind of northeast coast on the Jurassic coastline looking for fossils. And absolutely, it's one of my actually still one of my favorite things to do is is going fossil hunting. So I knew I had kind of this, um, this love for looking at rocks, finding out about rocks and just, you know, that amazement that this creature that lived millions and millions of years ago could, you know, you could hold it in your hand, but it would, it's turned to rock. I think when you're little, that's just something that's, you know, mind blowing. 
And then when I went, when I was nine years old, I got to go on a family holiday to Tenerife in the Canary Islands, you know, close to like La Palma, where all the activities being on, but another island that's volcanically active. And we got away from the beach, we hired a car, and we went up to see the volcano, so Mount Tidy. And I just remember seeing the lava. It's just, you know, it was just dark, a massive area. It just looked like to me the moon. And it's just so different to anything I'd seen before. And then you just saw this huge volcano just doing nothing. But you knew that it was capable of, you know, of waking up and being causing so much destruction and devastation. And so, yeah, it was just a fascination of how, how do these things work? Um, and I loved, you know, I loved the outdoors. I loved exploring. I'd love to say one of my influences was Marie Curie, but, you know, or someone <laughs> spectacular in science, but actually it was probably more like Indiana Jones. So, yeah, I always loved the adventure and, you know, the discovery, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you enjoy doing? Oh, sorry. Um, what are some of the specifics of the research that you are conducting at present? So some of the specifics are quite broad as we've kind of uh, detailed a bit through this chat. So it spans from looking at the shapes and chemical zoning patterns in volcanic minerals to see what that can tell you about the plumbing systems and how fast magma reaches the surface to these more social aspects of the people's perceptions. So I've been doing a study on Australia, the Australian general public, which has been, you know, is interesting as well because trying to put out a survey on volcanic hazards and risk and trying to get the public to think about this in Australia when we have, you know, bushfires, we've had floods, we've had the pandemic. So over the last two years, I've been trying to get, you know, people to complete a survey, but not feeling like I can push the survey because, you know, you know, why should people be spending time, you know, and energy on thinking about volcanic hazards when, you know, there's nothing actively erupting on the mainland at the moment, but we do have active areas, you know, when there's so many other natural, you know, more pressing, I guess, natural hazards that for people to worry about. So um, that's uh, been written up, um, the survey's just closed. And so I'm writing that study up at the moment. And then, yeah, this, um, the First Nations and Indigenous aspect And through a book that I'm writing on Australia's volcanoes, I'm hoping to bring a lot of the kind of people aspects, the history, um, the science, and, and kind of mesh it all together into this, you know, journey through um, how volcanoes in Australia, in a place like Australia, that you'd never think of Australia as being associated with volcanoes, how it's played such an integral role in human history and so and, and the landscapes around us. So that's really what I'm, the book's obviously a, a big project. It's like doing a PhD. So it's a, it was a big one to take on, but I'm just really passionate about that topic at the moment. Yeah. I can't wait to see the final result. Uh, what do you enjoy doing when you are not geosciencing or, you know, moving continents? So if I'm, yeah, if I'm not visiting volcanoes on holiday, then uh, with the kids and things, um, I'd like to do art and I've always loved sport. So I, I love being outdoors. You know, that's my, that's where I feel. I don't really like feeling, you know, a bit claustrophobic in, in concreted areas. And so I like to get out and about when we can. And then art, yeah. So all just, just experimenting, doing different things and, and doing art with the kids. So it's really fun. So my, I've got a five and a seven-year-old and my seven-year-old, she absolutely loves art. So it's fun to do, do things together. We, we've been doing a lot of acrylic pouring, which gets a bit messy with young children. It's a bit of a one to, uh, to control, but it was actually me getting uh, paint on the walls last time we did it. So, but yeah, that's the kind of uh, fun, I guess, fun things I like to do with the kids as well. That's great. Uh, Heather, how can our listeners stay up to date with what you're doing or get in contact with you if they want to? So I guess the main source of information that I have out there is the web is my website. And so that's just my, my name, heatherhandley.com. And so that'd be the best way to, you know, see what I've been up to, what I'm working on. The Earth Futures Festival is a big project at the moment. So that has its own, own website where Misa have their own website. So you can follow what Uh, where Misa are doing as well or join if you want to join and be involved and yeah I guess through Twitter but in the last few weeks of the move I've I've, I've just had no time to uh, for social media so I'm hoping soon I'll get back on onto that so yeah usually social media I'll I mean I only post when I feel like I've got something to say but um yeah I often use Twitter so that's probably the best best way to see what I'm up to on a on a regular basis 
That's great. Yeah, we'll put all of those resources in the show notes so that people can access the links. Uh, Heather, I was really looking forward to our interview. I really wanted to meet you and talk to you. And I am very, very happy with our conversation today. So I would really like to thank you for taking the time, especially, you know, in such a, a busy time for you under these circumstances of moving and everything. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for participating. Thank you. It's been so lovely to chat to you. So I'm looking forward to hearing it. Uh, we have a lot of cool things coming up in the future episodes. So make sure to subscribe to Nice Chats on the app that you use to listen to podcasts. In my case, is Spotify, but I'm not being sponsored. Um, and that way you get towed when there is a new episode. So it will show up in your home screen. Every last Thursday of the month, uh, we'll be releasing a new episode of the second season of Nice Chats. This podcast is brought to you by the Geology Podcast Network. The GPN is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. Follow Traveling Geologist on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologist.com or, like I mentioned, wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Mm -hmm.